We shall now turn to the chapter which we read together, uh, Judges chapter 4, and we could read again verses 8 and 9. And Barak said unto her, If thou wilt go with me, then I will go. But if thou wilt not go with me, then I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with thee, notwithstanding, the journey that thou takest shall not be for thine honor, for the Lord shall sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. I remember as a child reading the book of Judges and thinking how foolish Israel were. It was so obvious that when they served the Lord, they were blessed. And when they turned and worshipped idols, things went wrong and the nations around invaded them. Why did they not learn the lesson time and time again? They went after these heathen gods and they bowed their knee to Baal. And then the nations around would invade their country and oppress them. And then when they were humble, they would cry to the Lord for deliverance. Why did they never learn a lesson? Why don't you and I learn lessons? Are we not just like them? Do we not go astray after our idols too? The Lord blesses us in the ways of holiness, and yet we choose out for ourselves our own paths, and we go astray from God. And when we go astray from God, what happens? Things go wrong, and troubles come our way, and chastisement comes upon us. Should we not learn from these things? When will we learn? Blessed is the one that walketh in the ways of the Lord. Blessed is the one that does not go with sinners or stand in the seat of the scorner. Stand in the way with sinners and sit in the seat of the scorner. How important it is for us to learn. To learn the blessing of walking humbly with our God. The book of Judges tells us about the different experiences of Israel. First, we have the book of Joshua. We have the children of Israel entering the promised land, and they conquer the land, and it's divided out amongst the tribes. And then we come to the book of Judges, and we're told about Israel going astray, and God hands them over to the heathen. To Cush and Rishathaim, the king of Mesopotamia, and to the king of Moab, and to the Ammonites, and to the Philistines. And when they, when they are humbled and cry unto the Lord, God raised up for them Othniel, and he fought against Cush and Rishathaim and overcame them. When the Moabites invaded the land and dominated their country and humbled them, God raised up for them Ehud, the left-handed man, and he delivered them. And then we have this instance here. 
And then later on, we read about the Midianites. God sending the Midianites in upon the land, millions of them. And then God raised up Gideon. And we read of the Ammonites advancing. And Jephthah raised up. And we read of the Philistines coming and dominating Israel. And God raises up Samson. All these judges are types of Christ. They're pointing us to our great king, our captain, the one who delivers us from our enemies, our great hero. And interestingly, in this chapter, we've got two female saviors. And these women, they too are in that way types of Christ, especially Deborah. She was a type of Christ in that she was a prophet, and Christ is the great prophet. And she was a judge, and Christ is the great judge. She ruled Israel, and Christ is the king. And she also interceded for Israel. Barak wouldn't go to fight without the help of Deborah. How important it is for you and me not to go to battle with with Satan without the help of our Lord Jesus. It's by the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, that we will overcome our enemies. God sends these enemies in to humble them, to chastise them. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receiveth. If you have an easy life of it, and if no troubles come your way, I would be a little bit worried that you're not a Christian. Because Christians have lots of troubles. Because sadly, Christians so often sin. And because they sin, they're chastised. And Christians have troubles too, because God is purifying their faith and puts them through trials, as he did with Job. Job's trials didn't come upon him because of some particular sin that he committed, but rather in order to, that he might emerge as gold tried in the fire. The troubles that afflict the just in number many be, but yet at length out of them all the Lord doth set him free. And even jail is in a sense a type of Christ because she is the one who has the honor of finally conquering the great enemy. The Bible gives to women an honorable place. Ancient civilizations generally thought very little of women, tended to despise them and misuse them. The Muslim religion regards the testimony of a woman as only half that of a man. One man's testimony is as good as two women. That's the way they despise women. But women are created in the image of God, just as men are. And you remember the place that Christ gave to women. 
and the honor he put upon women. How he said to the Syrophoenician woman, I have not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. The faith you have who come pleading for your daughter and you're prepared to take the place of a dog, saying the dogs get a crumb from the master's table. What a wonderful woman she was. What great faith she had. And then we think of Mary of Bethany, who did what she could and who chose the good part that should not be taken from her. And it would seem that the women had, they were the last there at the cross. They were there at the grave on the Friday evening. And they were first at the grave on the Sunday morning, first day of the week. And you think of Galatians 3, um, where it is said in Jesus Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither bond nor free, neither male nor female. Male and female are equally one in Christ. Peter says, husbands, honor your wives as the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of eternal life. Heirs together, joint heirs of Christ. Yes, there are different roles laid down in Scripture. And the man is to lead the family in the service of God. And the man is to lead in the church, men to lead in the church. But women are equally saved by Christ and will be equally rewarded in the kingdom of heaven. And here we have two women who are female saviors pointing to the great Savior that we all need, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the captain of our salvation. Well, first tonight, I want us to notice Israel's sin. Verse 1, children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord when Ehud was dead. Ehud, a man of great faith. You remember how he went on his own to visit the uh, king of Moab, Eglon, who oppressed Israel. And he brought to Eglon a message from the Lord. And that message from the Lord was judgment, a dagger into his heart. And you remember how he blew a trumpet fought against the Moabites and overcame them. He was a man of faith and he brought Israel back to the Lord. But then when he died, Israel forgot the Lord and went astray. It's wonderful how God at times can raise up godly politicians, godly leaders in a nation who had a great influence for good. God raises up holy ministers in the church, wise ministers who are great leaders, great reformers. And for a time, things are going well. But so often, after a while, when they die after a while, there's a decline, there's a falling away, just as happened in this case. 
what an influence Christian parents can be. And then when the parents die, how often the children forget the God of their parents. The restraint is gone. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. People love sin. Just like the prodigal son, he couldn't wait till his father was dead. He was longing for him to be dead, his godly father. And in the end, he demanded the portion of goods that would come to him and went off to the far country to live as if his father was dead with drastic consequences till he ended up in misery and poverty and by the grace of God came to his senses and returned to the father's house. We think of godly Hezekiah, how when he died, his son Manasseh departed from the faith and was the most wicked king of Judah, ruling for 55 years until he was humbled and the prison in Babylon and his chains, the Lord brought him to repentance in his old age. And he returned to Jerusalem to try and put something right of all the mess that he had done. And sadly, friends, it's far easier to make a mess than it is to put it right. And some of you will know that in your own experience. The harm you have done that cannot later but right. We think of King Joash, wonderfully preserved by the high priest Jehoiada, and then guided by Jehoiada until Jehoiada died. And then when the high priest died, listening to the ungodly nobles and uh, forsaking the ways of the Lord, and eventually getting into such wickedness that he stoned to death the next high priest, the son of Jehoiada, Zechariah, between the temple and the altar, his blood crying out for vengeance. The citizens and the parable said, we will not have this man to reign over us and Sadly, there's too many like that. I wonder, are you like that? Wanting to go your own way, do your own thing, be a prodigal son, a prodigal daughter, running away from the standards that were set for you and choosing a path of sin and wickedness. Forgetting that the eye of God is upon you. Your parents might be nowhere around Godly Christians might not be watching, but God sees, and God is holy, and God hates sin, and God punishes it. There's a cost in a sinful life, even if you are to repent at a later date. There's a cost in a wayward sinful life. Israel's sin then, going after Baal, going after idols, going after false gods. Do you have idols in your life? What is an idol? An idol is anything that distracts you from worshipping God. 
anything that comes in and dominates your mind when you're in church so that you're not listening to the sermon, but thinking of your idols. Do you have idols that you need to get rid of to cast away from you? These false gods, your work, your friends, your pleasures, your enjoyments, your hobbies, the things that thrill you when your greatest thrill of all should be in God. Israel's sin. And then secondly, notice the just punishment of the Lord. God sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. Wonder what he sold them for. Sold them for nothing. Sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, that reigned in Hazor, the captain of whose host was Sisera, which dwelt in Harasheth of the Gentiles. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, for he had 900 chariots of iron. Chariots were the ancient equivalent of tanks today. Chariots of iron. And for 20 years, he mightily oppressed the children of Israel. He oppressed them. He enslaved them. He tyrannized them. Jabin, king of Hazor. A hundred years before this, we read of Joshua fighting against Jabin, king of Hazor, and burning Hazor. Hazor was a great city. Archaeologists tell us that there would be about 40,000 people living in Hazor at that time, when there was about 1,500 living in uh, Jericho. So it was a mighty city, but it was burnt by Joshua. But as the years passed, they regrouped, they built Hazor again. Jabin was a name like the, the pharaohs of Egypt. It was the name of the kings of Hazor. And uh, there's another Jabin on the throne. But it's interesting how there's so much emphasis not on Jabin, but on Sisera. Seems very likely that by this stage, Jabin was an old man and Sisera was the power. He was the, the mighty general. He was the cruel tyrant. He was the, the gifted leader of his people who had built up this army and who was oppressing the children of Israel. And he could oppress them because God had withdrawn his blessing. It's a terrible thing when God withdraws his spirit. Are we not feeling that in Scotland today? Where are people being converted? The churches are getting smaller. The congregations are getting older. Young people are turning their back on the church. Where is the power with the gospel? Is God's judgment not upon us? Should it not give us a concern? Should it not cause us to humble ourselves before the Lord? So Israel are oppressed by Jabin and Sisera, and they cry unto the Lord. It's not in vain to cry to the Lord. We need to pray today. 
We need to pray for revival, for a quickening, for an awakening, for a reformation in the churches, for a return, turning away from our idols and turning to the Lord with our whole heart, for a new dedication, a new godliness in the church, a new fear of God in our churches and in our land. Should we not cry to the Lord? His judgment is upon us. But then thirdly, we notice God's deliverance. God hears the prayer of his people. He loves to hear their prayers. You know how to give good gifts to your children, don't you? When they ask of you a fish, you don't give them a, a serpent. If they ask you for bread, you don't give them a stone to eat. You give them nice things. You love your children. How much more will your Holy Father, will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? How much more will your Heavenly Father hear your cry? If you're good to your children, how good God is to his children. Let that encourage us then to plead with the God of heaven to come again and to bless us and to grant us particularly an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that the heavens would open and the Spirit of God come mightily down upon us. God brings deliverance. He raises up for them Deborah. Deborah is the Hebrew word for bee. And a bee is very good to his friends, as it were, and that it's a honeybee to its friends, but a stinging bee to his enemies. So Deborah is a honeybee to Israel and a stinging bee to the Canaanites. We're told that she was the wife of Lapidoth. She was a prophetess. God spoke to her, and God spoke through this woman to Israel. She sat under a palm tree, uh, and there she held her court of judgment, and the Israelites came to her for judgment. She was wise, and she was godly, a real godly leader, and a blessed woman to Israel. God spoke to her and said to her, send for Barak, the son of Ahinoam. And she did that. And Barak came and she said to him, take 10,000 soldiers, 10,000 men from Sebulun and Naphtali, interestingly not from Ephraim or from Judah, but from those northern tribes, Naphtali and Sebulun, and gather them on Mount Tabor and go and fight against Jabin. He said, well, I won't go unless you go with me. Now, when we look in Hebrews chapter 11, we see that Barak was one of the heroes of the faith, one of the great men of God. 
And yet he wasn't prepared to go and fight without the help of a woman. Well, it wasn't really the help of a woman that he was looking for. It was the help of the God of the woman. And the God with whom the woman had contact. And the God to whom this woman prayed and in whom she trusted. He would not go unless she go with him. It reminds us of Moses. We will not go hence except thy presence go with us. Take me not up hence. We need you, Lord. Doesn't matter whether we have an angel or not. The thing that really matters is, do we have God with us? And if God be for us, who can be against us? Who dare be against us? So she promised Barak that she would go with him. She would go with him and she would support him in this venture. And she would she would pray and she would support him. It reminds us of Moses again, doesn't it? When uh, the Israelites were fighting against the Amalekites, how Moses went up a hill and Joshua led the battle and Moses was there with his hands lifted up, praying to the Lord. And as his hands were lifted up, the Israelites prospered. When his hands of prayer got tired, the Amalekites prospered. And you remember how Aaron and her stood on uh, one side and on the other of Moses. Moses sat on a stone and held up his hands until the Israelites had complete victory over the Amalekites. Barak had faith in God. Deborah had faith in God. They were laying hold of God's promises. And so, although they were lightly equipped against the 900 chariots of iron, yet they trusted that God would give them victory. God's on our side. What does it matter who's against us? The young lad, David, going with his sling and his stone, he can face the mighty giant Goliath. Doesn't matter whether he's 10 foot high or 100 foot high. Doesn't matter what weapons Goliath has. If God is with David, David's going to be successful. We need that kind of faith, don't we? Trust God. And who cares who's against us? We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We must be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And then we notice God's intervention. Barak called Sebulun and Naphtali, and from them came 10,000 men. They assembled on the top of Mount Tabor, and Deborah was with him. <coughs> Verse 12 tells us that Sisera heard about it, <coughs> and so he gathers his army a huge army, and these iron chariots to frighten the Israelites. And Sisera made his way to the valley of the Kishon. Deborah gives the command to Barak, 
now's the day. Off you go down and fight against Sisera. The commanders come from God, go and fight. So verse 14, Barak advances down the mountain and the Lord begins to work. How does he do it? He discomfits the Canaanites. Chapter 5, verses 20 and 21 says that he sent a rainstorm, a storm of rain so that the Kishon River began to overflow and the, the ground became all soggy and wet and the chariots were no use. Their wheels began to sink in the clay and the lightly armed Israelites were far more maneuverable and with God's help, they were able to get advantage over the Canaanites. God was helping them. It was a bit like the Egyptians. Remember when the Egyptian army chased after the Israelites right into the Red Sea. But then God began to afflict the Egyptians. And their chariots began to sink in the sand. Their wheels. And then the wheels were coming off the axles. And then they realized things aren't going well. And they became terrified and turned and fled. But it was too late. The waters came and destroyed them. And so it was here. Here were these Canaanites who worshipped Baal, the storm god. And there's a storm, but it's working not for them, but against them. They were superstitious. And so they were troubled when things started going wrong. And the storm favored the Israelites. And so many of the Canaanites were killed and the rest fled. And Sisera leaves his chariot behind and runs away on foot. So God gives victory to his people. And when we look to God, God gives victory to us. Why are you so frightened, O you of little faith? Why do you hold back? Why do you not venture forth? Why are you not bold as a lion? The Lord is with you. Rise up, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. Let all those who hate you be, flee from before you. The Lord is on our side. The church of Jesus Christ is the winning kingdom. And the kingdom of this world is beaten. Satan has been overthrown. The prince of this world is judged already and condemned. Let us be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, having your loins girt about with truth, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, bearing the shield of faith in your hand and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Fight the good fight of faith, strong in God. And then finally, we notice the decisive blow. We're told in verse 11 that Heber the Kenite, who was of the, uh, related to Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had left the rest of the Canaanites who were in the south in the semi-desert 
uh, area of the south, and he had moved north to the north of uh, the land of Israel. They were nomadic people. They lived in tents. They kept animals. And uh, it seems a very unimportant detail. And yet, there's no unimportant details in the scripture. It's all in God's plan. God had foreordained that this should happen. He'd planned it from all eternity. Before the creation of the world, it was planned. God is in total control. Nothing takes God by surprise. Nothing happens by chance. There's no such thing as luck or fortune. God is working out his plans. His decrees are sure and certain. So there's this man, Heber the Kenite, and his wife, Jael. And they live in a tent, and Sisera comes running. He's been running from the Kishon Valley, and he's trying to make it home to Harosheth of the Gentiles. But he's tired. He's exhausted. He's, he's managed to outpace the Israelites so that they can't see him. He's, he's put them behind him, well behind him. But Jails comes out to, to meet him and says, turn in, because there was good relationship between the Kenites and the Canaanites. But she is one who believes in God. She's one who has committed herself to the Lord and to the God of Israel. She takes him into her tent and uh, she covers him there with, with a blanket and he, he asks for a drink and she takes out milk, a bottle of milk, and she gives him milk, the very best of treatment, and she tucks him in again. And he says to her, stand in the tent and don't let anyone come in here. Don't tell that anyone's here. And he drops off fast asleep because he's weary. And so she takes a, a nail, a tent peg, and a hammer, comes in quietly to this mighty warrior. And she takes the nail and the hammer and hammers it through his temples into the ground. So he falls down dead before her. She is the one who destroys him. Now it's interesting. I was reading one commentator who, who says, well, she was so deceitful and she's so unlike the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ loved his enemies. What a lot of nonsense. Jesus Christ. He loves his chosen enemies, yes, and he makes his enemies his friends. But those who persist in being his enemies, he will destroy. And he will hammer the tent peg through their heads. Just as he hammered the, his heel upon Satan's head and crushed it into the ground, who through death destroyed him that had the power of death, that is the devil, wrestled with Satan on the cross of Calvary and crushed him and beat him, defeated him. Christ will trample his enemies underfoot and the winepress of the wrath of God. You know, we have in the book of Revelation that, that terrible phrase, the wrath of the lamb. Not the wrath of the lion, but the wrath of the lamb. And there's nothing quite like the wrath of the lamb. 
jail was here acting God's judgment upon this wicked tyrant. He was rightly destroyed. And all the enemies of the Lord will be destroyed. Make sure you're not an enemy. If you're an enemy of the Lord, you will be destroyed. Repent and be converted while you have yet time. Be reconciled to God. Make your peace with God while you have the opportunity. If you die an enemy of the Lord, you'll be punished forever in hell. And we believe in hell because the Bible tells us about it. It tells us, and nobody tells us more about it than the Lord Jesus Christ. Hell is a place of everlasting torment. And who wants to end up in hell? Turn then while you have time. Seek the Lord. Flee from the wrath to come. The love of Christ constrains us to plead with you, lest you perish. And the fear of God's wrath, how awful it is. Knowing, therefore, that the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. I would seek to persuade you to make sure you're a Christian. Make sure you're one of God's people, lest you end up perishing. So we have here set before us two women who point to Christ. Christ, the great prophet. Christ, the great king. Christ, the great judge. Christ, the mighty conqueror. What is Christ to you? Is he your beloved and your friend? Have you asked him into your heart and life? Or are you still saying, we will not have this Christ? To reign over us. Let us pray. O Lord our God. We thank thee that thou hast given to us. This wonderful teaching in thy word. And we pray that thou hast help us. To understand the scriptures. To grasp the meaning of. What thou hast put down for us there. We thank thee Lord. For the historical parts of scripture. We, th we thank thee for the songs of scripture. We thank thee for the prophecies of scripture. We thank thee for the gospels and the epistles and the revelation. Lord, help us to love thy word and to realize that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction and in righteousness, that the man of God might be truly furnished unto all good works. Pardon us our sins for Jesus' sake. Amen.